Welcome to our Tanya teachings. Part of a new mini-series, we're going to be learning about the notion of passion and fervor being infused into mitzvot. If you're joining us for the first time, let me just say that this is a continuation, although today's lesson can stand on its own. And I do strongly encourage you to take a look at what we've been learning up until now so that you can fully appreciate the wisdom, the understanding, and the knowledge that we'll be sharing today. If you aren't yet subscribed, please, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Please subscribe and enable notifications so that you know when we're going live and you can join us. Pedic Lamates. We're going to begin the 39th chapter of Tanya today. And it's about angels. We're going to learn about the creatures that populate heaven. That sounds really interesting, but really of what relevance does that have for us? After all, the book of Tanya is a manual for spiritual achievement and excellence for people. This is not a book of spiritual curios. This is not something that one studies because they're interested in being entertained with spiritual theory and theology. This is a, a book that was written so that you and I could achieve becoming all we could be to be successful in life, in our own spiritual mission and journey. Why spend our time focusing on the angels? Well. The Rebbe suggests that there are two very important reasons. The first is, we're going to learn that certain people, unique people, serve Hashem in a way that is far greater than the angels. And if you're one of those people, <laughs> I guess it's important for you to know that. And for the rest of us, it's important to know the, that the tzaddikim we revere are actually greater than angels. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. The other reason is lest you feel that your own avodat Hashem, your own servitude, your own commitment, your own devotion to the Almighty is lackluster because you're not one of those special people. Well, guess what? You're at least as good as an angel. Now, if that sounds intriguing, Please stay on for part one, Wings of Desire. So allow me to go back now and offer a brief overview, a preface, based on what we've learned in the previous chapter of Tanya. Every mitzvah is comprised of body and soul. The body, the action of the mitzvah. The soul, the passion the fervor, the awe, and the reverence, essentially, the intentions and emotions invested in that action. We've learned that just as there are four elemental realities in the world that Hashem created, the terrestrial physical world, just as there is a dimension of the inanimate, be it soil, or water, minerals, or gas, 
And just as there is an element of that which is alive, but only biologically so, like vegetation, from moss to seaweed to redwood trees and enormous vines. And then there is a level which is called life, chai. So domim is inanimate, tzomeach is the vegetative, chai is the world that teems with life. The world includes everything from beetles and worms to rhinoceroses, elephants, lions, tigers and cheetahs. From the smallest creatures to the giant mammoth whales, all of these creatures are alive. Not only in the sense that they can continue to grow or develop, but that there's something that's actually functioning, something that's got a consciousness, something that knows when it's threatened or what's good for it, and is able to use a variety of mechanisms to be able to achieve its necessary or stated goals. And then there's humanity. The highest dimension of life as we know it, of existence as we know it, in our world is humanity. Because humanity is called the medaber. Not only do we have intelligence, animals have intelligence as well. That's scientifically documented today. And before anybody knew it, the scripture stated, Shual the fox is the cleverest, the slyest of animals. And from this we can understand that obviously animals have intelligence. Why else would the fox be called the cleverest of the animals? The prophet also says, Yoda shor koinehu, the ox knows its master. And anybody who has a dog or a cat can attest to the fact that animals do have a great deal of intelligence. Nobody's arguing that. However, the one thing animals can't do is engage in meaningful conversation. They can't really communicate. They can emote or self-express, but they can't really understand something outside of them, which is what communication is made of. You can grunt, yell, scream, cry, wail, or laugh whether somebody is there or not. That's not communication. That's self-expression. To communicate is to understand where somebody else is, how they view reality, to be able to step outside of your own narrow orbit and to be able to appreciate the notion that there are objective truths beyond our own subjective view or needs. So the human being is the medaber. We explained this in great detail in our previous two classes. Mitzvahs, on one level, can be compared to the inanimate. That's the simple action of the mitzvah. Another element of the mitzvah can be metaphorized as vegetation. Not the simple action, but perhaps the words that are used to perform a mitzvah, like the recitation of Shema, or the prayers we recite passionately. So mitzvahs that are verbally oriented would be more like vegetation than like rocks or soil. And then we talked about the mindfulness, about the emotions, about the intention in a mitzvah. And the Alter Rebbe told us that when a person understands the greatness of God, and is motivated because of that understanding to yearn for or to create and nurture a greater closeness to God, or a person is motivated to be more careful about his or her standing as a result of the things they've come to understand, then those 
are uniquely human emotions. And this, of course, refers to what the Kabbalists called Ava Vayira, freely translated, love and fear, but that's a broad-based kind of euphemism for emotions. All emotions are things that impel us or compel us to do things. If we love something, we draw close to it. If we dislike it, we, we retreat or withdraw. That's the basic force of attraction or rejection. Now that's not uniquely human. The animals seek certain things, they love or like certain things, and reject or are fearful of others. What's unique about the human being is that those emotions can, and in a perfect world would be, engendered not by our instinct, or not by our base natural emotions, but rather by our intelligence. And that intelligence is unique to humanity. And if you can engender a sense of ahavavayira, a sense of awe, a sense of deep respect, a sense of love for Hashem, in which you seek to draw closer to God and to become absorbed into a higher spiritual reality, then you, my friend, then you must be a person who is extremely virtuous in the area of spiritual pursuit. Those are the kind of intentions that are called uniquely human. But if you're not capable of achieving that, you are capable, nonetheless, of reaching deep inside yourself and revealing the innate emotions, the innate emotions that each and every single one of us have. And those innate emotions that each and every single one of us have are metaphorized as, well, emotions that are animalistic. In our previous class, we talked about this notion of revealing the animal within. Now here's the problem. If my emotions are not intelligently created, they're not the result of deep study and contemplation. But my emotions are simply, I have this visceral desire to feel close to God. I want to feel fulfilled. I want to feel spiritual. I don't want to be separated from the Creator. The fact that I might do things inappropriate is because I convince myself that they don't really get in the way between me and God. That is, of course, the way sin is described in this very book many, many chapters earlier. That's how the Alter Rebbe explained the words of the Gemara, a person does not sin unless a spirit of folly enters. What spirit of folly do we refer to? Well, we refer to the spirit of folly, the foolishness, that behaving inappropriately does not impact or change my relationship with God in any way, shape, or form. But it does. The mitzvot I perform necessarily curate and nurture a profound relationship, a meaningful relationship on God's terms. Violation of God's will, rebelling against the Creator, necessarily gets in the way of our relationship. For lack of better terminology and perhaps as a lame metaphor or example, we all feel a connection to our parents and to our children. That's innate, it's natural. In fact, it's not uniquely human. I've heard people say that if you go to 
any given cemetery these days, you'll find a cemetery filled with animals. No, I'm not talking about the animals that might roam about the cemetery. I'm talking about all the tombstones that simply say, beloved father, beloved mother, beloved brother, beloved sister, beloved husband. They don't say anything about the person. They don't speak about the person's unique achievements. They don't speak about the person's unique accomplishments or the contours of their personality. They simply say they were a mother who loved the children. Animals love their children too. In fact, the Sefer Achinuch waxes on about the prohibition of sending, of taking the eggs or offspring of a mother bird without sending the mother bird away because being indifferent to the suffering of a mother bird makes us indifferent to the suffering of another. That's not to say that those emotions are human emotions, but they are human-like. Already, our maternal or fraternal emotions are animal-like. So the notion that one would care for their own kind is not surprising. There's a bird called a chasida. That's its name in Hebrew. The stork. And the stork is that metaphor which is used, the icon for childbirth. And the stork is called a chasida because it does chesed, because it shares with its young more than all of the other birds. All mother birds take care of the young. The stork does it most. You know, it's interesting that the chasida isn't a kosher bird. The flamingo is, not the stork. Why not? Because it only does kindness with its own. And to do kindness with your own doesn't make you pious. It may even earn you the name chasida because your nature is essentially comprised of giving. But if you're only giving to your own, you haven't really achieved any kind of extraordinary piety. And we'll talk about this a little bit later on. But really, really and truly, when a person transcends their natural orbit, that's the moment that piety begins. That's the stuff that righteousness is manufactured from. So the point that I'm trying to make is that innate feelings or emotions aren't uniquely human or virtuous. They're simply instinctual. And because they're instinctual, because they are basically an expression of self reaching in deep and revealing who we really are, they're not particularly impressive. They don't represent tremendous toil. They don't represent great achievement. And therefore, we said, if a person is to perform mitzvahs, but is not able to engender real avavayira, real attraction, or real fear of goodness or the opposite, then essentially they're reverting back to their instinct, their Jewish predisposition to want to be close to God, but actually not achieving anything particularly good. As I was saying, the relationship between parents and children is a natural one. We all understand, though, that when we offend our parents, we damage the relationship. When we hurt or criticize our children unnecessarily, it clouds that relationship. That relationship can be clouded, damaged, really even 
hurt to the point of alienation. It's always still going to be there. It's always still going to be there because in the end, it's still our children and they're still our parents. So even if we don't feel good towards our loved ones, we still feel something. The feeling of closeness might well be replaced by a feeling of frustration or anger. The feelings will always be strong, though. They'll always, they'll always run high. And the same is the case with mitzvot. A person will say, well, I'm Jewish. I'm connected to God. According to you in your Torah, I'm connected to God, they'll say to me. You say, it's in something intrinsic. It's something essential to which I would respond. It certainly is. What are you doing about it? What kind of effort are you investing to nurture and to develop that relationship or that innate bonding connection so that it actually becomes a relationship so that we can like that which we inherently or intrinsically love? Now, all of this is really but a preface. It's a discussion of everything we've learned previously. And that's where we end up in a serious pickle. You see, human emotions, developed emotions, emotions that are the result of knowledge acquired and mindfulness attained, represent an actual transformation of who we are. And if we can't really transform ourselves, and if we're essentially just reaching in to reveal our instinct, is that really an achievement? Is it really called Ahavavayira? Is it really called serving Hashem with our emotions? This is a serious question. It's a question that you and I need to contemplate because if not, we're wasting our time. Let me digress for a minute. If I may, let's talk about the notion of emotion, real emotions, not going through the motions, real emotions. A lot of people are afraid to come to the synagogue these days. Why are they afraid? They're afraid because they don't want to get sick and die. Will they, in fact, get sick and die if they come to the synagogue? Extremely unlikely. Precautions are being taken. Thank God. It's been months now. If the synagogues have been reopened, nobody's gotten sick here. Thank God. Thank God. Baruch Hashem, may that continue. More people have gotten sick going shopping for food. And yet the supermarkets are full. And the precautions taken there are significantly less effective than the precautions we take here. You're exposed to far greater danger in the local supermarket than you are here coming to Shul. I know this because, because I'm in Shul every day. And I'm in the supermarket at least once or twice a week. And I wasn't born yesterday. And I'm always watching and observing. I'm a thousand percent certain about what I'm saying. I've met people in the supermarket who flushed with color underneath their masks and said to me, Oh, Rabbi, 
I, I, we're afraid to go to the synagogue. I didn't say anything. I just, just my presence somehow, maybe it felt accusing to them. I don't know. I just smiled and then remembered they can't see my smile under my mask anyway. <laughs> I said, it's okay. I'm not judging anybody. I'm not. I'm really not judging anybody, or at least I'm trying really hard not to. People are on social media, mass media. They're fed fear all day long. They're fed fear because that's how the media gets you to keep coming back, because the media knows how to appeal to your basest of instincts. They're not serving you. Well, they are serving you as a meal. <laughs> to the advertisers. It's all about ratings. They need to get you to keep coming back to look at this program or listen to that broadcast to check your iPhone so that you will be glued and they have your attention. And then they can sell ads. They appeal to base instinct the most powerful instinct known to humankind is fear. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that causes people to change their course of action more so than fear. Fear paralyzes. Fear inhibits. Fear actually can atrophy and even destroy people. It's probably the single biggest factor for people's failures. They're afraid to take a risk, afraid to take a chance. The media knows this, so they appeal to that. What else do they appeal to? They know you like to feel good. Everybody does. It's not unique to human beings. Animals like to feel good too. How do you feel good? Well, when, when you have a, an experience that's pleasurable. Food is pleasurable, fun is pleasurable, entertainment is pleasurable, intimacy is pleasurable. There are various things in the human condition that are pleasurable because all creatures are pleasure-seeking. You can have something like the circus or SeaWorld where animals are trained to do things that they wouldn't naturally do because they realize that they get pleasure if they'll do it. They're smart, but they can't really communicate. They can understand that if they jump hoops or walk on two or do some other kind of feat, something unusual, something you don't expect animals to do, that they'll get rewarded. That's a pleasure. The people who train these animals are just trying to get paid so they can make a living. And they get paid because you like to be entertained. So the whole industry is driven by pleasure. The animal's driven by the instant pleasure it's about to receive. The trainer is driven by the pleasure it'll have with a paycheck. And the consumer is driven by the pleasure it'll have when it watches a porpoise jump and flip in the air. It's all pleasure driven. So fear is a powerful 
The most powerful instinct, the second most powerful instinct is what we call love. Who do we love most? We love ourselves. Now, in that same way that we're driven to engage with things because they bring us pleasure. Nothing particularly human here. It's the same for animals. It's just that different things give different animals pleasure. So the fish likes seafood. The tiger likes meat. You? Well, now you're sophisticated. You probably would like to have a salad. <laughs> or a wrap. Or maybe you still like beef, but you won't eat the beef the way the tiger eats it. You want it well prepared and seasoned. And you won't eat hay, certainly not the way the cow eats it, even though your salad is essentially made of herbs and greens, it's going to be tossed and decorated. It's going to be seasoned and flavored so that it makes you happy or gives you pleasure. Hatzad hashava shebenehem, the common denominator amongst all of the different forms of life is that certain things will bring them pleasure and they're motivated by that pleasure. Nothing that we've mentioned is uniquely human. What is human is to do something that doesn't come instinctually or naturally. So if people would be afraid, afraid of sin or ruining their relationship with God in the same way they're afraid for their health care, we'd all be tzaddikim. If people would be as afraid as averus as they are of infection, nobody would do anything wrong. They'd be afraid to. Fear would keep them away from doing those things. Because the truth is that Averot, that sinful behavior, robs us of life. The truth is that mitzvot give us a sense of deep-seated fulfillment and ultimately pleasure. But it's not apparent. It's not superficial. It isn't natural. We aren't instinctually drawn to it. So imagine. Imagine you could change the way you function. Imagine that you'd be afraid of an avera the way you would naturally of an infection. Imagine that you'd be concerned with your spiritual welfare, well-being in life in the same way you are with your physical well-being in life. Imagine that. Imagine that you'd get as excited to have a relationship with God as you are to spend time with your new grandchild or the person you've just fallen in love with. With God, it's ultimately acquired. The other examples are instinctual. That's who we are by nature. And as such, it doesn't really make us virtuous. It doesn't make us virtuous. If a handsome boy is attracted to a pretty girl, it doesn't make him virtuous. If a wealthy person decides to take care of a person impoverished, that makes him virtuous. The first is instinctual. The second is not. 
we're all aware of our feelings. In today's day and age, people are hypersensitive about their own feelings. Are you tuned into somebody else's feelings in the same way? Do you have the same concerns with somebody else's feelings of happiness or not? Loneliness or alienation? Who are we fooling? Certainly not in an instinctual fashion. It's something you'd really have to work at. And for most of us, even as we'd work at it, it still wouldn't feel the same way. Why? Because it's not as much fun. It doesn't come as naturally or easily to us, which is what makes it so virtuous. Now, let's be real. The truth is, the fact that certain things don't come naturally and they take great difficulty for me to do necessarily makes it virtuous. And the harder it is for me to do it, the more virtuous it is. But suppose I could actually change my feelings. Suppose I could become a real mensch. Suppose I could stop feeling my own sensitivities and instead feel your sensitivities. Suppose I could care as much about your feelings as I care about my feelings. Funny, the Torah actually does ordain that. That's the meaning of the Ahafta Lerecha Kamocha, loving your fellow as yourself. And all the commentaries raise their eyebrows and their eyes heavenward and say, for heaven's sake, really? How are we going to do that? How am I going to care about you the way I care about myself? Self-preservation is the first instinct of all. Well, the upshot is that, in truth, only the greatest of humanity are able to achieve that. The greatest of humanity, the people we call tzaddikim, men and women who are able to actually transcend their own persona and their own orbit. Individuals who are actually capable of forgetting themselves and always remembering others. Being in tune and in touch with their souls more so than they are with their bodies. The body, after all, is temporal. Here today, a pile of earth tomorrow. The neshama lives forever. The pleasures you have in a bodily sense are short-lived. The pleasure and the joy it's achieved on an ashama level, it's eternal. You'd think that we'd exchange the ephemeral for the eternal. That would be the logical thing to do. But it's not instinctual, and it definitely isn't natural. There's a ballad, a Hebrew ballad written by one of the Rishonim, one of the medieval sages of the Jewish people, people that we look at as, as angels. As the expression goes, Rishonim Kimalochim. If they were if they were angels, then we are people. If they were people, then we are but animals. And he said, and I quote, Adam Doeg Al Idbud Domov. The Aini Doeg Al Ibud Yomov. People are always so anxious about the loss of finances. They're worried about losing money, but they don't care about losing time. Domov is money in Gemara language. Yomov is days or time. Days will go by 
and people feel no heartache at the fact that those days are empty of any kind of spiritual achievement. Those days will never return. Time stands still for no one. And yet, we're more worried about money than we are about life itself. He went on to say that whilst that's how people function, always and forever worried about profit or loss and not thinking about the virtue and value of time and living in a qualitative way. Adam but he said, Yamav Einam Khizrim, Vidamav Einam Oizrim. Time never comes back. You'll never be able to have today again. And money? Money doesn't really help. Money is nice. But people with lots of money are deeply unhappy. And people with barely any money are able to live lives in which they have a sense of satisfaction. A couple of days ago, I heard Rabbi Dr. Label Wolf from Australia mention this, but I've read about it before, multiple times. I think I even may have spoken about it in a sermon years ago. A study that was done from Harvard University, the longest study ever performed, I believe it took place over a series of four decades or five decades. A fascinating study. A study that had several people heading the study because the people heading it either retired or died. And it's a continuous study. A study of a group of people, a controlled group of people, representing all stripes, including former presidents of the United States and custodians. And the essence of the study was to try to see who was happy and what was the single most powerful common denominator for the people who achieved satisfaction and happiness in life. And it wasn't fame, fortune, or money. It was relationship. And yet, how many people have destroyed those relationships in an attempt to pursue their careers. Adam, a person, is doyeg alibudamav. But the days, yamav, the time you have, slips right through your fingers. The money doesn't help. The days will never return. And he finishes off almost wistfully. Aslama Adam doyeg alibudamav. So why then, knowing this, being mindful of this, do people continue to worry about profit and loss, finance and fiduciary, instead of worrying about family and fervor, passion and piety? We know the truth. You know the truth. I know the truth. We know it. We talk about it. Sometimes we even take a moment to think about it. And then we just go back toward the same behavior. Why? In a word, nature. Because that's our nature. Now, it's really important for me to tell you that nature was created 
by God so that humankind would change it. It's precisely what's expected of human beings. That's precisely where human beings and animals separate. All life is sacred on some level. But human life is considered most sacred of all. Human life means the ability to change yourself. The stallion will always run faster than a person. The lion will always be a better hunter. And the mother bird will probably take better care of her children than we humans do. But none of those animals actually had a choice to make. None of those animals changed themselves per se. They simply did whatever they were programmed to do. But when a person is able to overlook their own slothfulness, laziness, inertia, and instead devote themselves entirely to their children in a sacrificial way, that is the meaning of changing oneself when you live for a higher calling, when you're prepared to overlook your own good for somebody else's. That's not simple. I shared a story many months ago, perhaps it was years ago, about a Lithuanian rabbi who they used to refer to as Ravid, not to be confused with the medieval sage. And Avram, and I think it was Avram Bear something, Ravid as they would call him, he made, he was a 19th century sage, late 19th century, he made Aliyah to Israel, and he lived in Tzfat. And the story goes that he was a very old man, whatever that meant in the late 19th century. And it was a snowy day in Tzfat, or inclement weather. And he braved the weather, and he came to Shul. And the people were very surprised to see him there. And they said, you know, you could have stayed home today. And he said to them, I have to say Kaddish for my mother. And somebody said, Rabbi, you're an old man. She would understand. And he said, you don't understand. Let me tell you who my mother was. And he goes on to tell the story of his mother who raised the children by her own, a widow. A mother who one day woke the children up early in the morning because there was a terrible blizzard outside. And she had told the children the night before that only one of them would be able to go to Cheder because they only owned one pair of boots. And the mother woke her child up early in the morning and she said, you are the lucky one. You won the lottery. And you are going to Cheder today. And she quickly dressed him and fed him. She put on the boots and then carried him to Cheder. And then she came home and woke up the next brother and said to him, you are the lucky one. You won the lottery. You are going to study Torah today. And she dressed him and fed him, put on the boots and carried him to Cheder. And then did the rest for the other two boys. He says, do you understand who my mother was? And I would be deterred from saying Kaddish because of inclement weather? That's not natural. That's extraordinary. 
Now the question is, what motivated that pious woman? That sweet woman who devoted herself to her children's Torah education, what motivated her? Was it the fact that she actually didn't care about the biting cold? Was it the fact that it wasn't a sacrifice even? It was natural? Or was it something that she believed in, knew to be right, and even though it went against her nature, overcame her nature, and brought those children to Cheder because she did what she believed to be right? I didn't know Ravid, and I certainly didn't know his mother. But I will say this. Real tzaddikim pulsate with a love for Torah and mitzvahs that makes them ignore the physical and the material. In the same way, we are often prepared to ignore Torah and mitzvahs. Cut ourselves slack because I'm not interested. But at the same time, it is possible that she was not a tzitkonis. She was not necessarily a pious woman for whom Torah study tasted better than a piece of cake. It is possible that she was motivated by her faith system, by her belief system, by her value system. And so she did what was difficult for her because ultimately she believed this was what was really good. She believed in a greater good. She didn't necessarily feel the greater good. I hope you can understand what I'm saying. It sounds subtle, but it's actually worlds apart. The first is an example of what we learned is called human emotion, and the second is instinctual. Because, as we've learned many times, we believe, as a yid nishter ken, or nishter will zich opreisen from gettelkeit. That's a quote from that famous book, Hayom Yom, that says that a yid neither can nor is willing to sever their connection to godliness. And if you will see people who behave sinfully and rebelliously and openly seem to sever their connection to godliness, the answer is, as stated, it's because they believe this won't sever their connection it won't really make a difference. It doesn't matter. Of course it does, but that's the spirit of folly. So like the story I mentioned last week, when Rebbe Yitzchak Bar finishes fasting on Yom Kippur and demands dessert, and what he meant was to receive a tractate sukkah and spend that night studying Torah because the Torah he studied was sweeter than the nicest ice cream. That's actually true for Rav Levi Yitzchak. For really righteous men and women, they have actually remade themselves. The rest of us, we still prefer ice cream. Or whatever it is that tickles your fancy. But we will forego the ice cream if we're under the impression it's not kosher. We may not enjoy foregoing the ice cream. We may not run from it like we would of infection, but we'll do it. Why? Because we're tapping into our elemental, instinctive connection to God. We take time to think about the fact that we have a special connection to Hashem. 
we are the heirs of a tradition that is 3,332 years old from Mount Sinai, or if you will, 3,700 plus years since Avraham and Sarah. And this is a very profound and meaningful tradition, and I don't want to lose it. And I'm going to make sacrifices to hold on to it. Even if those sacrifices are actually very painful, I still believe I'm doing the right thing. The question is, is that called Ava Vayira? The question is, is that called living and functioning with a sense of true fervor? That's the question. And if it isn't, because it's instinctual, we have a real problem. Do you know why? Because right on the front page of this book, it is stated that the purpose of Tanya is to actualize the verse in Deuteronomy, So it is written on the Sharblat, that first page of Tanya, it says it very clearly. The purpose of all this, this book, which was collected from scribes and books, the manuscripts of the holiest teachers, is all miyusad based on this verse, that this thing called Yiddishkeit is exceedingly close in a manner of speech, meaning in the realm of communication, and in our hearts, that we should have real emotions, the kind of emotions that lead us to do it. And the Alter Rebbe says, my self-imposed mandate here is to explain really well how it's exceedingly close. But it's not simple. A little meme, a little jingle, a little inspirational video is not going to do it for you. Laborious, intense, focused study of Tanya will teach you how. That's what we're doing. But one moment. If all the emotions that I'm going to achieve are but going to be animal-like because they are essentially a representation of one reaching into their instinct rather than a reformation or transformation of oneself, then they aren't really Ava Vayira. And if they aren't really Ava Vayira, am I fulfilling those mitzvahs? That elemental part of Judaism? So firstly, there are certain mitzvot which we perform continuously by virtue of attitude, our emotional state of being, consciousness. Those mitzvahs are called chovat halvavot, mitzvahs that we fulfill, mitzvahs like believing in Hashem, which is a positive mitzvah. Mitzvah of like not entertaining that there is another force that we should be mindful of. That's called idolatry. Mitzvot like loving Hashem, feeling attracted and drawn towards Hashem and wanting others to feel that too. Mitzvot like Yirat Hashem, being in awe, in awe of life, in awe of the opportunity that God gives me, in awe of how important my behavior is to God? It's a constant. 
I'm always supposed to feel those things. Those are emotions that are supposed to be developed. And if they aren't, I'm not fulfilling these mitzvahs. And if that's what Hashem wants, and I can't do it, how could you say it's karev ma'id? How could you say it's exceedingly close? Then clearly, Yiddishkeit isn't exceedingly close. The truth is, it goes further. There's a fascinating sicha, an edited talk from the Rebbe. It's in the third volume of Lakuta Sichas. It's a sicha, it's a talk, rumination, about the rabbi's sermon on two Shabbatot a year, the Shabbat before Pesach, before Passover, and before Yom Kippur. And the Alter Rebbe writes in the Shulchan Aruch about these sermons, sanctioned sermons. Ve'ha'ikir, what's most important, is lidrosh to expound on, to sermonize on, lahorot, to show, to direct to the nation, to the people, to the congregation, to the flock, darke Hashem, the ways of God. And to teach them to teach them, to instruct them what exactly they are supposed to do. The Rebbe says, from the fact that the Alta Rebbe Darke Hashem, and then says, and Ulilamid teaches you that there's two real subjects being addressed here. One is the ways of Hashem, and the other is what we are expected to do. Are those two not one and the same? Clearly, the Rebbe says they aren't. So let's talk about a highway, a roadway, a pathway, a bridge. These are mechanisms that allow us to leave one location to arrive at a destination. The road is what you'd call a means to an end. The destination is the fulfillment of Hashem's mitzvot. Living our lives in accordance with the instructions and will of the creator of the universe. That is the destination. The questions, how do you get there? How do you get there in a full-throated, full-hearted, full-minded, full-blooded way? How do you get there, not only doing the bare minimum, just fulfilling obligations or getting through the proverbial halachic checklist, but really investing all of ourselves into the fulfillment of these hallowed principles? The answer, says the Rebbe, is when you develop and nurture a sense of emotion, a sense of passion, a sense of awe and reverence, being amazed by the opportunities Hashem gives you and being in awe of how important you are to God. The Rebbe in the Sicha says that if a person will do a mitzvah without chayas, without vitality and energy, fervor and passion, but rather the mitzvah will just be performed habitually, mindlessly, if you will. Then eventually, the mitzvah observance and fulfillment will start to suffer. There'll be a continuous attrition. 
The Rebbe says, firstly, you'll stop being so meticulous. You'll stop going the extra mile. You'll stop trying to do all the bells and whistles of the mitzvah, what's referred to as hidur mitzvah, quite literally to beautify through meticulousness. You start to leave some of the details off because it doesn't really make a difference as long as the job gets done. I was talking to somebody yesterday about buying a new pair of tefillin. It's a really important mitzvah. It's a person who lives in a really nice house. They drive a really nice vehicle. They wear nice clothes on occasion. I said to him, you know, polyester pants will work. An acrylic sweater will work. But I never saw you wearing polyester pants. Sometimes you wear jeans and denim, but you're a person, you like to wear a nice suit. So do I. I don't see you wearing acrylic. You like to wear wool, don't you? So why is it when it comes to tefillin that people settle for, well, the bare minimum? It's because that mitzvah is not being performed with a sense of passion. I'm not excited about the mitzvah. So if it covers the subject, if it fulfills the basic obligation, hey, my clothes, well, that's different. I have a passion for my clothes. I enjoy style. I like nice clothes. Of course, I'm going to go the extra mile. For, for me, clothes are not just utilitarian. For me, clothes don't just keep me warm or clothes so that I'm not naked. Clothes frame me. They make me feel better. Whether I actually look better or not is a good question. Whether anybody notices is a better question. But in people's minds, that doesn't matter because perception is reality. In their world, everybody noticed and they feel good wearing stylish clothing. But the stylish clothing or the beautiful clothing from a utilitarian perspective doesn't really do a better job. Ah, but this they like. You could survive on bread and water, basic proteins. Most people like nice food. Whether it's fast food or gourmet food, they like the food to taste and look good because they have a passion for food. If you have no passion for mitzvahs, you'll just do the bare minimum. So you need to have a passion for mitzvahs. The Rebbe goes on in this sikha and he says, if one is to contemplate human nature, you will know that every single person, every person, has a passion for something. Every person gets excited by or for something. So if your passion and excitement, your exuberance, your enthusiasm, your joy, your fulfillment, your awe, your reverence, your amazement isn't going to be for Torah and mitzvahs, what will it be for? Self-serving pleasure or something like that? Invariably, that will necessarily get in the way of your mitzvah performance. Proverbially speaking, when you bribe the judge, he's no longer objective. When your passion is elsewhere, you don't look at the mitzvah objectively, you look at it subjectively, you cut slack for yourself, 
you make excuses, and you ignore opportunities. And you don't even feel guilty because your passion lies elsewhere. The Rebbe finishes off there must be vitality. There must be energy in the performance of mitzvahs. That's Ava Vigira. And coming back to the Tanya then, but if this kind of Ava Vigira is considered but animalistic, if it isn't real fervor, it isn't real passion, and you know it isn't, you know that both of us care more about the food we eat and the clothes we wear and the fun we have than the Torah we study. You know that people don't complain that the hockey game is two and a half hours long. You know that. Unless you don't like hockey. Then maybe you like the ballet. And if you do, you don't complain that it went for an hour and a half. You wish it could have gone for a little longer. Do you know how many people kvetch and complain to me that these classes are too long? Rabbi, if only you could do it in 15 minutes, I'd watch your class. I'm talking about people who have nothing to do with themselves and are staring at the walls and going stir-crazy from COVID disruption and lockdown. But they can't be bothered to watch a Torah class. It actually makes no sense. It's human nature. If I was only more entertaining, if it was only more fun to listen to what I was saying, if only there could be some special effects, if I would be showing you live angels today and having them flap their wings of desire, oh, I'd have your attention. I'd have thousands of views on this class. So we don't really... We don't really love Torah mitzvahs and Hashem in the way we love ourselves and our material or sensual pursuit. But some of you are watching now. And some of you are loyal listeners and viewers and you come back day after day and I'm trying to be as loyal as I can and devoted as I can in delivering these classes. I do enjoy teaching Torah. Not nearly as much as I enjoy the things that any of us enjoy. So what do I do it for? Why are you doing it? Because deep down we know that this is the right thing to do. The right thing for me to do is to teach Torah. The right thing for you to do is to study and learn Torah. And if it's working for me, then that's my privilege and my honor. Thank you. And if it isn't, then you need to find a better Torah teacher. I'll try not to be offended. The reality is it's not about me. It's not about you either. It's about Hashem. It's about God. So the nature of our emotional involvement is entirely lackluster. We're basically reaching into this notion that we know, instinctually speaking, that that's who we are and that's the only way we will feel fulfilled in life. And if so, is it of any value altogether? Are we really just wasting our time if we're not at Sandik? So the Alter Rebbe comes along in Pedeklamites and he says, My dear friend, let me tell you about angels. Because you're an angel. And I'm thinking, Rebbe, 
You don't know me. I'm no angel. You're an angel, says the Alter Rebbe. How in heaven could I be an angel? We're a small, little, slothful, conniving, selfish people. We are angels? Alter Rebbe says, well, let's talk about angels. And when you understand the essence of what an angel is, you'll understand that, yes, your service to Hashem is actually angelic. And that's pretty good. That can give us satisfaction. And that's where I kind of started out today. So Alter Rebbe is going to talk about angels now. The truth is, it's not about angels. It's about us. Alter Rebbe is comforting us. He's telling you and I, that in the end, if you're a tzaddik, you're greater than the angel. But if you're an ordinary person, your service to Hashem is angelic indeed. It is precisely because of the nature of emotion that is instinctual, that we just talked about for the last hour or so. That's gamkein nikroyim hamalochim b'shem chayis u'behemis. You said you feel like an elephant? You feel like a donkey? You feel like a, a cougar, a tiger, an ox? Okay. That's how the angels are referred to. The angels are called b'shem chayis, and the angels are called b'shem behemis. And that's the purpose of this Sefer. The purpose of this book is to motivate us that we should feel good about our Avedis Hashem and we should be motivated to strive for even greater achievement, not by making you feel good by lying to you and telling you delusional things. The Alter Rebbe is telling you the Torah truth. You should know that angels are metaphorized as animals. Why are they metaphorized as animals? They're not animals. They have no fur. <laughs> they, don't, they don't eat or rip other living beings to pieces. They don't gore other things that get in their way or annoy them. What it makes them an animal? Why an animal? It's ridiculous. An angel is not a person. An angel is not an animal. When Hollywood depicts an angel and puts wings on a person, it's profoundly, patently ridiculous. It's not an angel. It's a person with wings. <laughs> That's all it is. When they put angels, they put wings on a lion and say, oh, the angel is here to save you. It's a lion with wings. And just as those children's books that depict animal life using human frames are ridiculous, whether it's a, a, a movie or a book, a bug's world or whatever else it is where they depict these animals as interacting like people. There's so many children's books like that. It's ridiculous. Animals are animals. People are people. Animals don't choose to be good or bad. There can't be a Winnie the Pooh. Because a Winnie the Pooh functions like a little boy a Pooh. But it's more fun if it's Winnie the Pooh. If he looks like a little bear. You know what I'm talking about. But really, if we're to be mature about this, not be childlike in our imagination, children that like silly little books and silly little movies and adults that like silly movies and mature but equally silly entertaining ideas which are ridiculous. Like angels being people that are swooping down to help lonely people as if they're essentially a person. That's not an angel, then it's a person. 
So why call an angel a beast? And the Alter Rebbe says, this is as per as the scripture itself. And we refer here to the first chapter of the prophecies of Ezekiel, who is shown a heavenly vision. And in that heavenly vision, he sees Pnei Aryeh He sees a lion's face on the right. The Goimer, etc. Pnei Shor Mehasmoyli sees an ox's face on the left. Why does the Alter Rebbe bring this notion of Pnei Aryeh and Pnei Shor, which is found in the prophetic visions of Ezekiel, we have many, many expressions where the angels are called Chayas HaKodesh, holy beasts and animals. And the answer is very simple, because the word Chayas can mean a wild animal, or it could just mean vitality or life itself. It could be understood as a broad description of things that throb or pulsate with life. So the Alter Rebbe says, but if you look into the book of Ezekiel, you'll see that it's not simply saying that angels are creatures who pulsate with, with, with verve and exuberance and animation and life. No, the angels actually are metaphorized in what the Rambam calls Mashal Vachida, in what is merely euphemism and parable anthropomorphism. It's not literal, God forbid. But that nonetheless is the metaphor that was employed. Why? That's the question. And the Alter Rebbe says that the reason is not because angels have fur. They don't. They don't. They don't get hungry. They don't get angry. They don't go on the hunt. They don't instinctually lick their master like a little dog does. No, angels are not animals. They're called animals. Because the angel doesn't choose to do the right thing per se. The angel who serves God with love and sings songs of praise or whatever else we use in this metaphoric terminology that we don't really understand or relate to because it's not part of our human experience. But whatever it is that angels do and the methodology through which they serve God, it's not a choice they made. It's not as if they were predisposed to loving chocolate cake and instead they decided to love God. That's our challenge. That's what people are tasked with. And most of us still love that chocolate cake, even if it's not kosher. We just won't eat it because we believe it to be wrong. And, and we're essentially marshalling our instinct, our soul instinct, because we believe that the Torah is true, and therefore we are convinced beyond the shadow of doubt. It's our faith that doing this will make us close to God, even though we don't feel it. Nobody has to meditate on dinner before they eat dinner to have an appetite. If they do, they have some serious issues. That's a severe mental illness. If a person has to contemplate and meditate why they should eat dinner before they eat a tasty dinner. Now, you might have to force yourself to eat food that's not tasty because you're really hungry or because you know that it's healthy for you. But you still don't like it. You're just doing it because, well, you know it's the right thing for you. And in the end, you want to stay body and soul and you've got to do what's necessary to bring yourself holistic healing or wholesomeness. But you don't like it. You don't love it. It isn't delectable. So you, you get to choose. You get to choose because, because you're attracted to other things. Angels don't choose. 
They're not attracted to anything else. There's nothing else that catches their attention. And there's certainly no possibility for sin. Of course, angels understand. Of course, angels are brilliant. The Rambam himself waxes on about angels and he says that they are Baal Seichel Godel. He says that they have enormous intelligence, far beyond anything that you and I could possibly imagine. But the intelligence that the angel has isn't used to change the angel. In fact, the angel who serves God with love can only serve God with love, and he never serves God in any other way. Not only he doesn't have to choose between right and wrong, he doesn't even choose between gears or switch gears of right. He's just singularly programmed. And if anything, he just does what the angel was built to do. So he isn't really virtuous. Yet, if we'd meet an angel, we'd be overwhelmed. Samson's father was. Of course we'd be overwhelmed. The service to Hashem is beyond imagination. Their capacity is something that we can't even fathom. And let me tell you, my friends, if I believed for a moment that my Avedis Hashem was as good as an angel's, I'd feel pretty good. And the Alter Rebbe is trying to comfort you and I and say, hey, it is as good as an angel. It's, it's not animal-like, it's angel-like. Only angels are metaphorized as animals, and we need that metaphor because in the end, you and I aren't capable of really understanding what an angel is. But we do see animals. And therefore, Einam Baal Bechira, when the Alter Rebbe talks about the animal before, he said that the animal is Eini Baal Seichel U Eini Baal Seichel, the animal doesn't really have intelligence per se, and then a choice to make as a result. Here, the angel does have intelligence, far greater than human intelligence, but that intelligence does not lead him to choose because he isn't challenged. And the love that this angel feels, the reverence, the awe, the fear, if you will, that this angel feels, he it's all nature, it's all instinctual. Like it says in the part of Zohar, which is called Ava Mehemna in Parshas Pinchas. Therefore, the virtue of tzaddikim is far, far greater. So if you're a tzaddik and you're learning Tanya, you know that your Avedis Hashem and the efforts you make are far greater than the service of an angel. And if you're an ordinary person like me who looked up to a tzaddik like the Rebbe, you know why now we look at the Rebbe as greater than an angel. Because a tzaddik is more powerful. A tzaddik's avodah is more impressive than the avodah, the service of an angel. But it doesn't mean that we're doing bad. Because when you mustered your elemental desire to be close to Hashem, when you react as a result of that instinct that you're attracted to godliness and a life of spiritual fulfillment, you have necessarily achieved an angelic 
level of service. And those wings of desire, the desire to be close to Hashem, even if we don't really feel it, those wings can lift, elevate, and ultimately transform us and the world around us. I hope you enjoyed this lecture, and I hope you'll join me again, because we're going to continue to develop this thesis as we talk about the difference between tzaddikim, ordinary people, and angels, and the interplay that that has for us. In the next class, we'll talk about the neighborhoods that tzaddikim populate versus the neighborhoods in which angels live. We'll talk about coveted real estate and different levels of angelic creatures but that'll be with Hashem's help next week. I do hope that you'll join. If you aren't yet, please subscribe and be sure to enable notifications. Thanks for joining today.